Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. In 1973, Pink Floyd's The Dark Side of the Moon was on its way to become the year's best-selling album. The end of America's involvement in the Vietnam War was in sight, with the official signing of a ceasefire. And meanwhile, the first American space station, Skylab, was launched into the stratosphere. And much like now, Terry Hemmert was a lot of things. For one, a native of Piqua, Ohio, with a modest population of about 20,000. She was an avid reader, a self-described radio nerd, Beatles fanatic, and an appreciator of soul music, gospel, and arts of all kinds. She was also just starting a new role on air at Chicago's WXRT, which at the time wasn't even airing 24 hours a day. Well, I grew up the typical teenager of the 60s with a transistor radio glued to my ear, and I loved listening to the radio all the time, and loved the disc jockeys, I knew who was on when and all that good stuff. And I thought, if I got to be a disc jockey, I could hang out with the Beatles. Over the years, Terry became many more things, like an educator, both on the air and at Columbia College. No longer just a fan, but one of the foremost experts on anything Beatles-related. And yes, she did get to hang out with them. In a voice that not only blazed a trail for women in radio, but one that millions have relied on in good times and in bad. Whether a rock and roll hero passed away, or listeners themselves needed their own saving. My goal is to meet every single listener to this radio station, and I've met a lot of you, and it's been a pleasure, whether it be at the grocery store or Ravinia or wherever, I always look forward to meet part of the XRT family, and if you listen to this radio station, you are part of the family. Throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, and now, Aunt Terry, as she often calls herself, has become equally ingrained in radio history and in our lives. And I said, do you think I stand a chance, a woman getting on the radio? And he said, be the first. I'm Jim Hankey, and this week we congratulate and sit down with Terry Hemmert, celebrating five decades with our friends at 93XRT and a lifelong love for music and radio. Let's get looped in, Chicago. Last week, before Terry's official 50th anniversary on air at WXRT, WBBM's own Rob Hart sat down with Terry to discuss her inspirational journey. Now, this is part one of a two-part conversation, the latter of which should be in your podcast feed right now. Enjoy. So first off, uh, Terry Hammer, congratulations Hi. on 50 years at uh, WXRT. 
Good and thing I'm sitting down. <laughs> when, when, when you when you walked in, were, were first off, were they at the at the bunker on Belmont in 1973? Yes, we were, and I had to take a bus to get there, <laughs> and they gave me bad directions. I I stopped the purse snatching on the way. Actually, the the glamorous life of radio. Yes, yes, you, you, yes. You're a broadcaster and part time vigilante. Apparently, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> never again. Now, <laughs> what was it like then uh, when you got to XRT in '73? Yeah. You were you were doing overnights, but was they were they still on the time sharing yep. arrangement where they were the classical station during the day? Well, or? no, actually, they were the uh, foreign language station. Oh, yes, that's right. Yes. And so people would fall asleep listening to XRT and wake up to the Spanish show. And the guy was a screamer, you know, the old top 40 mm-hmm. DJ and and all kinds of noisemakers and, and in Spanish. And then there was a Croatian hour and then uh, the Polka King. And, and every time we added more hours to the rock, we would have to take off one of those shows and there would be pickets out in front of Belmont and Cicero there. <laughs> which which also just goes to show you the, the 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 change in the city over the course of that time because mm-hmm. even though the Chicago is and has been and will continue to be a city of immigrants, uh, these communities are represented by someone somewhere and at some time and in 1973 it was 93.1 on your FM dial. Right, it was. It was uh and out in that neighborhood I learned to appreciate Polish food. I never had it in Ohio, <laughs> you know, so where I grew up. So yeah, so I started there. We were on the air from 10 p.m. to like 5 or 6 in the morning. And so there'd be somebody on from like 10 to 1 and I'd come in at 1 and finish it up and then do a 15 minute newscast so we could get all that out of the way. <laughs> Nobody was listening. And then no offense to newscasting. Of course, you guys are my second button um, next to XRT, of course. But um, yeah, it was uh, pretty primitive and it was a little bunker out on the Northwest side. Not very glamorous. Actually, I was there by myself. Well, for a while they had an engineer there just to take meter readings. And I think they didn't, didn't trust us. I don't know. I, there's nothing to take. So, But uh, the transmitter would break down a lot. So I had to learn how to deal with this old antique transmitter in the middle of the night. Plus, you know, we had that big antenna there and people would climb up that antenna at night to threaten to jump and, or maybe they had too many drugs and they'd been to a dead concert the day before and they were still coming down from that. And uh, that was scary because if the alarm went off, I knew somebody was up there on that tower and I had to call the police. So it's a good thing that the engineer was was on duty if, the, if yeah. there was an engineer present. But then they went away and I was there all by myself. <laughs> now, before we talk about your remarkable tenure at XRT, uh, you grew up outside of Dayton, Ohio. Yes. And the day the Beatles appeared in the Ed Sullivan Show, was a foundational moment in your life. Life changer. And I wasn't the only one. <laughs> you know, you look at the spike in sales of guitars and drums after that. Everybody joined a band. And I tell my students at Columbia College that I don't know if they can ever reproduce that because we were all watching it at the same time because you couldn't watch it on demand. If you didn't tune in, you missed it. And I was a skeptic. I didn't know if I was going to like them or not. I thought it was kind of too much hype. Plus, I was a big soul music fan, and I thought, oh, good, four more white guys doing soul covers, just what we need, because I had Pat Boone to refer to at the time, <laughs> and I was blown away. I mean, they were just phenomenal. So then the next year, 65, I was uh, looking like I was studying in my geography book in study hall, but I actually had Tiger Beat or something stuck in there, and I saw a picture of Jim Stagg, who was here in Chicago, not at the time, he was in Cleveland, but I couldn't pick it up down there in, in Piqua. But he was interviewing Ringo. And I thought, if I got to be a disc jockey, I could meet the Beatles. 
and it made sense. What did make sense is that I was female and, and still am. And remember those old signs, no Irish need apply. It was no women need apply. But I thought, well, if the Beatles made it from Liverpool, maybe I can make it from Piqua. So you go from Western Ohio. Uh, what made you zero in on Elmhurst College? A friend of mine went the year before, and she uh, said, we're having a senior high weekend for people looking for a college. I think you'd like it. And I got to stay in the dorm with her that weekend, too. That was a bonus. And saw the college radio station, which was beautiful. It didn't have egg cartons up there for <laughs> soundproofing. And, and it was close enough to the big city where I could put my foot in the water. You know, to go from a town of 20,000 and moving to Chicago, that'd be scary by myself. But I could get on the train at Elmhurst and go to Old Town, which when, it was really Old Town. Piper's Alley was actually mm-hmm. an alley. I bought my first blues album there, you know, in college. But one weekend there, and I always joked, I said, if Harvard had called me, I'd say, nope, I'm going to Elmhurst. And it turned out to be a really good match. When you're growing up, and you were talking about, you know, Jim Stagg, then WKYC in Cleveland, Radio oh, you 11. Can, you know your stuff. <laughs> and uh, these 50,000-watt AM stations, mm-hmm. some of them were playing rock and roll, and the lack of electrical interference in the air then compared to today meant you can pull in a lot of stations sure. from a lot of different places, especially at especially night. At night. Yeah. So what was your kind of entry into rock and roll radio above and beyond the potential to interview uh, one of the Beatles? Well, we had a station in Dayton that was really a good top 40 station. It was W-I-N-G. It was a Wing Lively guys. That's where Fred Winston got his start. And uh, I, brr, 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 brr. Yeah, I listened to him when I was in high school, and then we got to be buddies when we ended up And a up very in good Chicago. guy, too. Wonderful guy and very supportive. The only thing I knew about Jim Stagg was that picture, but I listened to them a lot, and they heavied up on R&B. They played more. I came out here, and I'd say, oh, Irma Thomas, and they'd go, who's that? And I said, well, she had a hit, you know, but they didn't play it on CFL or LS up here. And so I, I was really excited to get out of Piqua. I love Piqua. I just came back from there. I go there several times a year and have a lot of great friends. But I really wanted to come to the big city, and I wanted a chance to meet the Beatles, and they were not going to come to Piqua or even Dayton. They went to Cincinnati. So I moved out here, and uh, Jim Stagg had come to CFL by then. I met him a couple times. Actually, I called his uh, assistant because he was a music director, and I was making up a survey for for the college campus station and they were one of my sources and we'd talk every week and I said, Oh, I'm going to see Jim at this thing. He said, Oh, I'll put you on to, he'll talk to you. No, no, that's okay. I was really shy. <laughs> and he got on. I said, well, come up and say hi. And I did. And I said, do you think I stand a chance a woman getting on the radio? And he said, be the first. So he was so encouraging and that meant the world to me. But anyway, at night, as you mentioned, I could pick up CKLW in Windsor, Ontario, and that was a great station. Like every other song was a Motown song. And then there was one from uh, Nashville or Memphis, and they played a lot of R&B because I loved soul music and R&B growing up. Coasters were my first favorite group. Was that uh, WLAC? Yes, in yes Nashville? that was it. Nashville, yeah. And th- there was a guy who was on overnight there who was, I think he was the inspiration for Wolfman Jack. Probably, yeah. And they were all white guys that sounded black. You know, they were really, there's Haas Allen or somebody, and they were real characters, but they loved R&B, and that's what I grew up on. I really loved it. So armed with this advice and encouragement from Jim Stagg, uh, where do you go from Elmhurst College? Is it uh, WGLD in, in Oak Park? Uh, do you go off to Rochester, New York? Well, I 
graduated and got an apartment in Oak Park, four blocks from WGLD, because I knew that was where I wanted to work, and I knew I couldn't afford a car. So if I had an apartment <laughs> before the job, that was good. And I kept bugging them at GLD to hire me just to work in the office, because they already had a woman on the air. They had Psyche, and they said, we can't put two women on the air. Oh, I no. Mean, that was considered radical. They had a woman <laughs> on the air. Finally, they hired me just so I wouldn't bug them anymore, and my first job was answering the request line. 90 bucks a week. And it was in a walk-in closet. Seriously, people would come and hang up their coat and say good morning to me. But it was amazing because it was when Janis Joplin died and Jimi Hendrix died. And I was like a, a counselor, you know, where you call in to, for help. And I was talking people off the wall. You know, the, they were going to jump out the window. Everybody was dying at 26 years old. So uh, that was interesting. And then one step at a time, I moved up to being the... Um, or the assistant to the program director, and I made up jobs to do just to keep me really busy. And then I started doing fill-ins on the weekends and holiday. My first show was on Thanksgiving Day. And uh, I called my parents, said, I can't come home. I'm going to be on the air. <laughs> and I was scared to death. But And then I did that for a couple of years. And then a man who just passed away a while ago, in fact, I just spoke at his uh, celebration of life up in madison wisconsin tom tuber who worked down here in chicago too at met we knew each other via social media ah yeah wonderful man and the ultimate helper he got he mentored so many people that made it into radio and i met him at elmhurst i met him when i was a high school kid looking at the station in fact when i left he turned to dr lowe who would be my faculty advisor and said that tall girl will be back <laughs> you could tell by her eyes i was just like oh my gosh anyway he was out in rochester and he said as soon as i can i'm going to hire you and get you out here and it was midnight to six six nights a week and i got mono doing that it was really grueling, but it was but it was great. It was like the Beatles in Hamburg. You know, they played six hours, but they learned their craft then. Because radio, you can't sit and think, hmm, what am I going to sound like on the radio? You have to do it. It's like playing guitar. You practice. Yeah, that you, really... You find your voice. That I, really is the case. I would tell my students, if you became a guitarist because you like B.B. King, you start off sounding like B.B. King, but the big challenge is you sound like yourself. And you don't... You have to find that voice. That doesn't just happen. Coming up, Rob and Terry discuss the FM revolution and the glass ceiling that accompanied it. All that and more after the break. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. T-Mobile.com. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, 
the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. And and this was a period of time in broadcasting where you had the first wave of rock and roll music stations. The mm-hmm. those the the, the fifty thousand watt AM stations. The staff all men. They're all the good guys. They're mm-hmm. the men from so and so. Short two and a half minute songs. Lots of commercials. Lots of clutter. And then FM starts to come on. Right. Uh, the the simulcast rule is put into place. You can't simulcast the AM station anymore. Some play classical music. Some play jazz. And then others are colonized by these rock and roll DJs who did the AM thing mm-hmm. and wanted to clean up the formatics, make it more about the music, uh, take a right. lot of the kind of the fake big voice ethos out of it. You know, Tom Donahue out in San Francisco was uh-huh. a pioneer of the format. Yeah, he was. And you go to Rochester in the 70s. And, and what was that like in terms of working overnight, what it, what it meant to be a broadcaster, what the audience expected from you and what you learned from the audience? It was great because that was really underground radio, they used to call it, and uh, progressive rock, all that stuff. And it was anything goes. I could play anything. I could bring records from home. I could do whatever I wanted. And I had a blast. The funny thing is if you go back, and and I don't do this because I hate to hear myself on the air, but (laughs) go back and I won't release those, those tapes of college evolving and middle college i'm doing an r&b show so it's all up in here dear jolly green with the rock and roll for lunch mm-hmm. bunch and and sweet soul music you know and all and i was like you know talking like a r&b dj and then a couple years later it sounds like i'm stoned and i'm not because <laughs> i never smoked pot in my life <laughs> you know um i had health issues but I, I passed a lot you know joints but i never smoked but i sounded like hey it's terry you know, really laid back. And, but then by Rochester, it kind of balanced out and you just tried to sound conversational. And in the middle of the night, I was just talking about somebody the other day about how I went to a center in Rochester and went through the training program on how to talk to people that are calling in that are threatening suicide. Cause I was getting a lot of that. Cause at 3 AM back then, who do you call? The DJ. Right. You the the one person any, who's up. Yeah. You don't want to wake anybody up. And also anonymous enough that it's not embarrassing or that anything they tell me, it's not going to come back to haunt them later. <laughs> and so I went through a training program and that helped a lot, but it really helped me develop. Uh, and this is, again, you have to practice at this an intimacy with the listener to where I'm talking to one person. I'm not talking to Rochester, New York, you know, and that was a, uh, that was wonderful, and I got to play a lot of different things, and bands would stop by afterwards because there was no place to go in Rochester after 2 o'clock. And so, you know, they'd show up in the studio and hang out, and we'd talk and carry on. And the classical music guy over at uh, the public radio and I had a thing going on where I'd play something. I knew he was listening on his way in, and I'd play a Mozart, you know, something that he liked, and then he'd play a Mozart horn concerto on my way home and said, thank you, Terry, for that, you know, <laughs> what you played for me last night. And it was just great. One night I was, I had the flu and I was having a rough night. And I don't know if you remember Chuck Mangione, but he was a great jazz musician, lived in Rochester. Feels so good. Yeah. And his brother Gap played there too every night at the Shakespeare Lounge. And he was on his way home from work and heard that I was really sick. He got a bottle of champagne, came up to the studio because I was up there alone in his crushed velvet 
Edwardian mm-hmm. suit in 1972. And we drank a bottle of champagne and he helped me do my show for the rest of the night till six. But And sometimes there was a gospel show after and he would oversleep. And so I got to do the first 20 minutes of the gospel show. He showed me where his records are. And I've always been a gospel fanatic. And all these little ladies were calling in like, oh, because I'd say Sister Terry here, you know. <laughs> And I moved to Rochester and I was lonely. I didn't know anybody, and but I had a friend in Jesus. Oh, praise the <laughs> Lord. And then I'd play these great gospel choirs because when I go to New Orleans for Jazz Fest, I spend half my time in the gospel tent. That is the birth of soul music right there. And it's just incredible music. So I got to do a lot of different stuff there and then also taught my first class. There was a school without walls and the kids, high school, made their own curriculum. And a group of high school boys approached me, all boys. And they said, we want a course on radio. Would you teach it? That's why I got the teaching bug, really. Well, I was going to teach if I didn't make it in radio. So I was ready for that because I didn't think I was going to make it. So Rochester was very productive for two years. And then I came back here and GLD broke up. It, it became WBMX. And I actually went back there and worked in the office for a while just to pay rent because the same people were in the office. I was a charity case. And finally, this spot that XRT wanted to hire me, and it op- opened up. And so finally, it was Seth Mason, John Platt, and Bob Schulman, the triumvirate, we called them. And I was the fourth employee there, so um, and doing all nights. So I still had to work part-time to afford to pay my rent because the salaries were pretty ridiculous. But we didn't do it for the money. At one point, did you work at Super CFL? I never did. That was a oh, hoax. That was a hoax? That was a <laughs> well, joke? Yeah, well, that was uh, Jim Stagg invited me up after one of those conferences. And uh, and there was a guy that worked there, Tom Connard, who passed away a while ago. Mr. Aircheck Factory. Yes, you know. I figured you might know him. And he was like the first kind of fan thing that I ever had. I mean, he, he even came and did a photo shoot at, at Elmhurst at... Uh, the station there and uh he was working in the office at the cfl and and jim invited me to stop by the studios afterwards they show me around and so tom took advantage of that set me down put the headphones on made it look like i was doing a show and, and then put out a press release on cfl stationery but that was that's about one april fools but and jim stag he was wonderful after years passed he left radio he had a a record store in Skokie, Record City, which was a great record store. And I asked one of my salesmen, because we were running spots, I said, could you arrange a lunch for me and Jim? And he said, sure. And Jim knew who I was from the radio, but he had no idea we had a connection. So I took him out to lunch and I said, you told me to be the first. You were really nice to me, encouraging. It meant the world to me because you're the reason I got into radio, that picture. Oh, I told Ringo that story a couple of years ago, and Ringo loved it. He just loved that story. And I know what that means, because when somebody comes up and you inspire me to do this, it means a lot. That's why you get up in the morning, hoping to do something other than just get a paycheck, you know? So I was telling Jim, and Jim said, I didn't think anybody remembered me because I wasn't flashy. I didn't have any gimmicks. And it's like what you were talking about before. He was like a grown-up, and everybody else is ringing cowbells and banging, you know, and screaming. And I said, but Jim, listen to radio now. Everybody sounds like you. They don't sound like somebody yelling, hey, buddy, yeah, turn in a peanut butter. You know, I mean, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, I said, it sounds more like you. You're a big influence and you loved music 
and you obviously had a respect for your audience. You're a good teacher. Now, you have a love of radio. You have a clear love of music. What do you see yourself as first, as a person who loves music or a person who's passionate about broadcasting? I think music. And I think maybe that's why I connect. I don't know. I didn't sit down and say, if I do this, then they'll like me, you know. But I just kind of fumbled around. But I think uh, the music brings us together. I, I love music. I teach it at Columbia College, History of Rock and Soul. And my mom was a music teacher, and she inspired me. I saw by her example the way teaching and helping people overcome their fears by getting up and performing, that that's really an amazing thing to teach somebody. I had a speech teacher freshman year of high school. I was so shy because I'd been bullied in Catholic school and finally went to public school in eighth grade. And it was only my second year and I was getting along with everybody and I was waiting for the big reveal where they'd say, well, we're just kidding. We hate you too. <laughs> you know, And it didn't happen. And I was in the speech class and I was the worst student in the class. I couldn't even look up and look at the audience. I fumbled around. I talked about life in the Peace Corps. That was, <laughs> and I just, I was terrified of getting up and speaking. And by the end of the semester, I gave the only speech, got a round of applause. And I thought, Wow, Miss Butcher's really something else. She could take me on that journey in one semester. If I don't make it in radio, I'll be a speech teacher. And I do both. And on, on the subject of being the first, and I think you know the, the expectation of being a woman in radio, it's mm. it's it's changed drastically. Yes. in the last fifty years, you you led that. But in in nineteen seventy two seventy three, uh, there was a station in Chicago, WSDM ninety seven point nine. Station with the girls. Yeah, the station with the girls and all that jazz, and they were cooing over records and stuff like that. Well, and you're supposed yeah. to be like a fantasy object on the oh, radio yeah. in 1973. Like, like, give me a cigarette. You know, yeah. I'm satisfied. Yeah, right. Well, Yvonne Daniels was on that station, and she doesn't get enough credit. I remember we were on TV with a woman that was on the country station, and we were the only three women in town on the radio, and I kept, and they because I was on XRT and that's was their favorite station. They kept, I said, no, Yvonne Daniels, she's the pioneer. She's the first woman I heard on the air that sounded like herself. I mean, I heard women trying to either sound like real sexy or uh, smarter than any man, you know, this, you know, real authoritative thing. And I thought, yeah, neither one of those. And I heard Yvonne and I didn't want to sound like Yvonne. I, I, she challenged me to find out what my voice was. What, who am I on the radio? Because when you turn on the mic, first couple of years, it's kind of like, Ooh, what do I do now? And then you talk to the whole town, you know. But I learned from her, and she was very influential. But she ended up then uh, there, and she also did All Nights on WLS and then was on the, the New Age jazz station. And then sadly died of cancer at a young age. But she was wonderful because the station with the girls kind of put me off because it was just sort of like, and I always would do these seminars for college kids on women in radio, or I'd call it broads and broadcasting. <laughs> and, and I said, don't get on there and try to sound like you're seducing the audience. That doesn't work. You know, no wonder other women didn't want to hear other women. Because I heard that all the time. Well, women won't want to tune into you. Let me show you how it's done. <laughs> 
but doing it that way, yeah, it's off-putting and it's kind of phony. So when I was struggling there for a while and couldn't get a job, I probably could have gotten a job with them and I chose not to because I didn't want to be stereotyped. I, I wanted to be me, you know, and being a woman's part of me and there are other things too. And I didn't want all the focus on being this, you know, gender pioneer. I just wanted to do radio and play records for people. <laughs> This episode of Looped in Chicago was hosted by me, Jim Hankey, with additional recording by Chris Lopez. Check out part two of Rob Hart's chat with Terry Hemmert right now in your podcast feed. And be sure to follow us on social media at WBBM Radio and at WBBM Podcasts for visual content in relation to our episodes. Thanks for listening today and stay subscribed on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get podcasts to stay looped in. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Listen to every MLB game live. The deep left center field, it is high, it is far, it is gone. Stream minor league affiliates. The Midwest League home run leader. And watch the best baseball highlights and look-ins on MLB Big Inning. MLB at bat is your all-in-one live baseball subscription for only $3.99 per month. Deep left field, it's going to go. Alvarez ties the game. Subscribe to at bat within the MLB app today. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission.